Okay, find Genesis 14. We continue our journey through Genesis. We continue looking at Abraham. And looking tonight at the subject matter, fighting the good fight of faith. Fighting the good fight of faith. Genesis 14. We'll pick up reading in verse 1. And I will read all the way down through the, uh, the end of the chapter. Although maybe I need to call on a volunteer to read this chapter tonight. Any volunteers? Any, any volunteer to read tonight? There's a reason I'm saying that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, okay, let's get started. Verse 1. In the days of Amphrophel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Chedalorimer, um, that's a tongue tangle, Chedalorimer, king of Elam, entitled king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of uh, Siddim, or Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer. Um, that one gets me every time. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth. Carnim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shaveh, Kirathaim. And the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedolemur, king of Elam, titled king of Goim, Amphrophel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of butamen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. 
When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, Hobah, uh, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre Take their share. Well, as you well know, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, still referred to at this point, of course, as Abram, who's referred to in Scripture by what title? In the New Testament, how's he referred to? Uh, how is Abram referred to? The friend of God, exactly. Now, when we hear a statement about a man being called the friend of God, what do you think about him? Boy, he must have been perfect, right? Righteous and godly, and he had it all together, never stumbled or anything like that. Is that the case with him? No. We've seen anything but perfection. He was tested, and in that first test... He failed. He ran down to Egypt. He didn't trust God to take a, uh, look after him in the land when the famine hit. And so apparently he was looking for the easy way out. And so after starting well, he stumbled. God disciplined him. He started over again. And last week we saw the positive change in Abram when he started over. But what we notice in him at this point is he is a man who has obviously grown and he's matured some in his faith. Now tonight I want us to see that the Christian life is not only a life that will be filled with tests and trials, but it's actually also a life that will be filled with battles from time to time. You know, some people today want a life, a, a, a life of ease. But the Christian life is not always a bake sale. Sometimes it's a battle. Somebody once wisely said that, you know, Christians are looking for life on a cruise ship. And we need to understand that the Christian life is life on a battleship. 
We want the cruise ship. It's the battleship for now. What I want us to see tonight also is that there are definitely some things worth fighting for. Sometimes we get ourselves involved in battles that we should have never been in to begin with. But this doesn't mean that all battles are like that. Some battles are very much worth our attention. And when we get in those battles, God equips us with what we need. Now for the majority of our time tonight, I want us to look at the, uh, at the principle that the Christian life calls for recognition. And I'm going to explain that. But the Christian life calls for recognition. There must be a recognition of the need of warfare at appropriate times. Now, before we develop that thought, please allow me to spend some time setting the table. Because I want you to understand what's going on in the early uh, part of chapter uh, 14 here. What we have here is the first recorded battle in the Bible. Okay? It's not the first battle to ever take place because... Even in this text, we would assume that there had been a previous battle between all of these kings. One group of allies had become subject to another group of allies. So what does that assume for us? That assumes there's already been some type of conflict between them. Now stay with me uh, tonight for a few minutes because I want you to see how conflict has been a part of the human experience ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Again, sometimes Christians think everything is to be a bed of roses. But since the fall in Genesis 3, that's not the experience that we read about in the Bible. Now, as we think about this scene that's going on here in chapter 14, it's like something right off the pages of modern history. There's four kings from the east led by Chedor Lamer. And these four kings ruled over areas that today would be parts of modern-day Iraq, modern-day Iran, Pakistan and Turkey. That would be the modern day area. The five kings that they had defeated ruled in areas around Palestine and the Dead Sea. We would refer to that as the Jordan Valley area. This is the area where Abram and Lot have settled. Specifically Lot. Lot has pitched his tent toward Sodom, one of the cities in that area. Now these kings from the Jordan Valley area, they get tired of paying tribute to the four kings from the east. We're told that after 12 years they got together and though we're not told the details of this high stakes political meeting between them, they decide that now they are strong enough to quit paying tribute to these kings from the east. And so the next year, in the 13th year, they're going to quit paying tribute to them. 
Well, again, we're not told all of the, about all the high-level meetings that obviously took place, but the four kings from the east get together. They come up with their battle plan to reinvade the Jordan Valley, and they are going to once again force these kings into paying tribute. They're going to assert their dominance over them again. Now, as verse 5 picks up, the four kings from the east with their militaries have marched westward as they begin attacking. And it's interesting the approach that they took. They attacked, first of all, the outlying areas so the kings of the Jordan Valley would have nobody to appeal to for help. What they do basically is encircle the Jordan Valley. Many feel like they came down the King's Highway. The King's Highway connected the the great nations to the east, part of the uh, Mesopotamian world and Egypt, the King's Highway that ran down through Israel. Some feel like they came down the King's Highway. They cut off any escape routes that these five kings from the Dead Sea area would have had. So they encircle them. They cut off escape routes. The four kings from the east fight some of their toughest battles first. They attacked the Rephaim and the Zuzim. These were tribes that were made up of giants. The ancestors of Goliath. The kings from the east got them out of the way first. Then they also defeated everyone else who surrounded the kings from the Jordan Valley. Then they turned their attention to these five kings who by this time are making plans of their own. And so the five kings go out to engage the four. Now one thing characteristic of this area was that it was laden with tar pits. Perhaps some of you have visited the tar pits in the area of Los Angeles, probably Dr. Willis growing up in in that area out there. Well, there's a concentration of tar pits in this area that we're reading about tonight. And the way the desert sand would blow in and cover the tar pits, you wouldn't know. Sometimes you wouldn't know that you were in one until it was too late. Well, the five kings from the area get stuck in their own tar pits. The rest saw that they were being defeated and they run to the mountains in full retreat. And so the four kings from the east are able to successfully subdue and overwhelm this whole region. Now by the way folks, between 1924 and 1979 all five of these cities represented by the five kings have been located and excavated. And here's what one leading archaeologist reported. He said, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside laid waste. 
The population had been wiped out or led astray into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkept, with all of its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. End of quote. And so the four kings from the east have engineered a decisive victory. Since the five kings have not been paying tribute over the course of the previous year, the four kings decide to go in and essentially rape the area. They forcibly seize anything of value. And they also took prisoners to be slaves. Who gets caught up in this mess? Lot. Lot gets caught up in this mess and he's captured. Now last week we talked a little bit about Lot, didn't we? We talked about how his poor choices were going to end up costing him dearly in the long run. You see that beginning to come to pass now, right? Sodom looked really good to Lot. It didn't seem to matter to him that they had a reputation for being wicked. The fields in that direction looked good. And so Lot chose that area being the area that he was going to go to. There's no indication that he prayed about his decision. He didn't think of any long-term consequences. He simply chose what looked good to him at the moment. Ding, ding, ding. Any bells go off in your head? Isn't that dangerous? We do something that looks good to us at the moment. The way it looks to our eyes, the way it sounds. We might say, you know what, that that just looks like a good choice. A good fork in the road. I think I'll go that direction. And maybe it's some major monumental decision that we need to make in life. And we don't take time to pray. We don't seek the mind of the Lord. And oftentimes we end up paying a high price, don't we? Well, that's the story of Lot. Making decisions in life based on what looks good at the moment. Well, now look at him. What's his situation? He's a prisoner of war now, right? He wanted to be like the world apparently and now he's caught up in the mess the world is in. That's why I said last week that we'd better be seeking God when it comes to major decisions in life. Don't make your choices based on what looks good at the moment. Because you might end up paying dearly. Well as the story progresses we see that Abram learns of Lot being kidnapped Somebody who escaped has come and told Abram this. Now, apparently up until this point, Abram's not been involved. He's not concerned himself with this war. You know, as long as there is hardship happening somewhere else or involving somebody else, somebody we don't know, 
It's no skin off my teeth. Isn't that what some people say? It's no skin off my teeth, what somebody over there is going through. But now his nephew is captured. And so now he gets involved. It has all of a sudden become a battle worth his attention. Abraham gets together 318 fighting men who belong to him. Now this says something about how wealthy Abram has apparently become. He's got 318 trained servants. Think of the the number who was not trained. He's got 318 trained. And so in a divide and conquer strategy of guerrilla warfare, Abram divides up his men and they attack the troops of these four kings and they win. And from the way the text reads, they didn't attack them all at once. They took on different companies at night until they had beat them all. Abram was a shrewd commander. Very shrewd. Again, it was definitely a battle worth fighting. You know, I think of some of the wars we fought. Maybe some, I don't know, it's... Some people want to say some wars we fought we had no business getting involved in. Uh, They want to be an armchair quarterback after the event. But, But then there have been battles like World War II that no American would question, right? Pearl Harbor was attacked. All of a sudden we got in that battle then. Well... That's the type of war Abram assumed this to be. Now again, the Christian life calls for battle at appropriate times. And we need to recognize that. There are some battles you simply have to fight as a believer. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, for example, says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Regardless of whether you want to be engaged with the devil or not, guess what? You are engaged with the devil. By the way, Jesus never doubted the existence of the enemy. He never doubted. Some people today want to doubt the existence of the devil. Jesus never did. Jesus spoke of Satan's activity. He said that the devil is a liar and a deceiver. He's the father of lies. He lies about God. He lies about God's work. He's a liar. It sometimes amazes me how people who say they're Christians would doubt the existence of the devil. Jesus never did. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. You know, right now, who knows? Members of our congregation who might be going through a tough time in their life, you, you may not realize it. I mean, we may not be able to see it with our 
physical eyes at the moment. But you might be undergoing some kind of trial, some kind of test, some kind of battle that is the direct result of spiritual warfare with the enemy. I'm not saying every battle is. God has us involved in battles to test us and grow us. But some battles we're involved in, some some tough times we go through in life, we're engaged in spiritual warfare against the enemy. And we need to have our eyes open to that possibility, that that is a reality. We have brothers and sisters in need. Lot probably would, would not have survived had Abram not stepped in and ended up doing what he did. What could Abram have said? He got what he deserved. He made his choice. He made his bed. Let him lie in it now. He could have he reasoned all of that. You know, I know of believers who've done pretty dumb things before, right? Sometimes you sit down as a pastor with some family in counseling and they're in some kind of time of trouble and they tell you what they've done and you think, you're in trouble? No kidding. What if situations like that, we just said, just wash our hands. What Jesus say about going this about helping out with people? He talked about going the second mile, right? The Bible says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know what that's called? It's called ministry. Right? Remember what Cain said? What was Cain's question? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Abram certainly acted like Lot's keeper. And I'm sure Lot was grateful he did. They were both uh, strangers and pilgrims in this world. Remember the New Testament does refer to Lot as a believer. Maybe a weaker believer than Abram, but, but he was a believer nonetheless. And here you have a stronger believer coming alongside a, a weaker believer to rescue him. So all around us, there's people in battles. People in battles. Maybe somebody that you know. What action will you take? Aren't you glad Jesus took action for you and me? Then also there's the battle for truth, right? Jude 3 and 4 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
I have never seen truth attack the way it is today. Paul said to Timothy, you need to guard yourself and you need to guard your doctrine. You need to guard the truth. He went on to say, fight the good fight. Hold on to the faith. Folks, as believers, we've got a treasure entrusted to us. The gospel. And the gospel is worth fighting for. Well... Secondly, not only do we need to live with recognition, but the Christian life calls for preparation. Preparation. Verse 14, what's Abram begin to do? He enlists the help of others. What's he realize? This is not something he can do on his own. So he gets together 318 of his men. And... He didn't just say, hey, I know guys, you've been, you've been holding on to a, a shovel. So now just go out and do the best that you can. No, he didn't do that at all. The Bible says they were prepared. They prepared themselves. Folks, we need to prepare Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 said, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. People, and get, people are engaged in battles today. People are engaged in battles today that the weapons of the flesh will be no good against. None. Are we preparing ourselves and preparing others for the spiritual warfare that the church is involved in today? Are we doing that? You know, some people toy with things they know that are wrong. Sadly, people will open up their their homes and their lives to enemies all the time. And, And they would not dream of opening their home to somebody like a burglar. But their lives are open to all sorts of bad things. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 6, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Again, what's he talking about there? Preparation. Gird your loins with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. And put on the helmet of salvation. And take up the sword of the spirit. What's Paul talking about there? Preparation in spiritual warfare. Believers have to make preparation for spiritual warfare. Thirdly, I want you to see tonight the Christian life calls for consecration. It calls for consecration. 
when we read Genesis 14, we, we, we see the warfare going on through verse 16. But now some writers point out there is essentially another warfare, different kind of warfare, but another warfare that starts going on in verse 17. It's a different kind of warfare, warfare just the same. What's at stake here is not Lot and Lot's possessions, but Abram and his heart. The Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar once said, Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. There are two quite opposite characters that come out to meet Abram after the battle. On the one hand, there is Melchizedek. On the other hand, there's the king of Sodom. Folks, you couldn't have had two more opposing figures. Melchizedek is somebody that, that certainly the New Testament would, would refer to as a type of Christ. Some people think he, he's... He's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. That's not the case. I don't think that's the case at all. The writer of Hebrews is going to talk about Melchizedek. It's not saying he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But he's a a Christ-like figure and a high priest at the time. Melchizedek leads Abram in a time of worship and he, and he reminds him that what he has accomplished he has done so only through the grace of the Lord and the strength of the Lord. God is the one who has delivered Abram's enemy into his hands. Now in response what does Abram do? He pays a tithe to Melchizedek. So in paying the tithe, what's he recognizing? He's recognizing that everything he has and everything he was able to do is what? It comes from God. It's a gift from God. And so he's giving of himself and his resources. He's giving as an act of worship. It's an act of consecration. And he's giving something that is very concrete. There's nothing abstract about it. You either give of yourselves and your resources to the Lord or you don't. It's measurable. People all the time want to say that they worship God, but when it comes to tangible expressions of worship, they don't do that. James reminds us that our faith, if it's real, there's got to be tangible expressions to it. So Abram consecrates himself to the Lord. He puts his faith in action. Now the second person that he encounters is the king of Sodom. So here's Melchizedek who reminds Abram that, that he is what he is and he has what he has by the hand of the Lord. Now the king of Sodom wants to give all the possessions of the land to Abram. So what is this? Or what could this be? Yes. This could be a temptation for Abram to forget about God 
and the blessings of God. Remember, we've already been told in chapter 13 that Sodom was a very wicked city. Even though the king of Sodom may have meant well, it would have identified Abram in some sense with them. Abram is refusing to be identified in any way with that. He removes himself from ever facing that. He certainly doesn't want to ruin his testimony by having the king of Sodom say one day, Well, I'm the one who made you rich. Legally, did Abram have the right to everything he was promising? Absolutely. But he realized something that the Apostle Paul wrote centuries and centuries later. On one occasion, Paul said, All things may be lawful for me, but all things are not what? Expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Something that may be allowable in your life may not be best for your spiritual growth. Now, some of the writers on this chapter, and and I think they make a good point, they leave you with the impression that perhaps the the latter half of the chapter is the more significant battle that Abram won. Sure, the the first half he defeats these kings. But the second half of the chapter defines who Abram is going to be as a man. Is he going to be tempted by the things of the world like Lot? Maybe even going the way of Lot? Or is he going to keep his heart focused on God and continue being the friend of God? That's a question for us. Hopefully in life, we'll have more success stories than defeats. We'll face battles, many battles. We'll come out hopefully stronger on the other side. At a time like that, we can be tempted to continue on in life in our own strength, with our own resources. We can think, hey, I won that battle. If I won that battle, I can win the next. Or we can stop. And recognize that all we have is only because of God and God's grace. We can consecrate our lives to Him, serve Him, give of ourselves and our resources to Him. In other words, do we anchor our future in our abilities or do we anchor our future in God and what God can do? Which is the bigger battle that Abram fought? I think it's the last half of the chapter. A battle for his heart. It could have certainly played out that way. I want you to recognize tonight that the Christian life does involve battles. Don't be surprised by that. And... I want you to remember there are definitely some things worth fighting for. All of this 
inconvenienced Abram. It cost him. It, it's effort, all of that. But it was worth it. It was worth it. I want you to recognize that the Christian life involves preparation. Recognize that it does involve battles. And recognize it does involve preparation. Tragically, what do some Christians do? They neglect their spiritual lives. They're careless in their spiritual lives. They don't grow, whatever it is. They just they, they go along and then they find themselves in the midst of a battle. And they're not prepared for it. They've not been given due diligence to their Christian life. Oh, now they're in the battle. Whoo, I want, boy, I've, I've all of a sudden got to get ready. Well, sometimes it's kind of hard then, right? If you have prepared yourself along the way for Christian battles, it's a whole lot easier to win the battle when it comes. Don't wait till you're desperate. And I also want you to understand that the Christian life involves consecration. Recognition, preparation, consecration. And again, just because you've won a battle today does not mean you can let your guard down. After each battle, you have to be consecrated to the Lord. Waiting on the next battle. Each new day is going to involve new struggles. And you need to keep your focus in the right place. And you need to keep your devotion in the right place. Recognition, preparation, consecration. Recognition, battles are real. Preparation for it. And consecration after each battle Give yourselves to the Lord in a fresh way, ready for the next battle. It's a great chapter. It really is a great chapter. It says volumes about Abram.